0: this is the wiser than yesterday podcast your hosts sam harris and nicholas farik digest the most interesting informative and topical books giving you their biggest insights we expose different perspectives and tools to look at the world to make you wiser than yesterday
1: hello everyone and welcome to the wiser than yesterday podcast my name is nico As usual, I'm joined by my good friend and co-host Sam. And today in this episode, we're continuing our path of entrepreneurship slash business. And we have just read the High Growth Handbook, written by Ilad Gil, co-founder of Color Genomics. He's a former vice president at Twitter, and he's an investor and advisor to Airbnb, Coinbase, Pinterest, and many other startups. And so his book, The High Growth Handbook, is quite literally a handbook that contains tactical advice on key issues for post-product market-fits companies. And so the advice that he gives are examples such as the role of the CEO, how to manage a board, how to hire executives, late-stage fundraising, M&A, and many other topics. So Sam, I know that you're currently running a company which is not in the high growth stage yet, but what did you think of the book and what were your takeaways?
0: I enjoyed the book. I did start reading it a long time ago and stopped reading it because I was like, I want to read this when I'm in this stage. And now I've read it, but like maybe like a little bit ahead, but it was, it's definitely more, we're in like the first zero to one stage and we need to kind of have a plan for all of these things or like acknowledge what these things will mean for us it's very useful and probably I will read it again in three months time when I go into high growth stage which is obviously going to happen in three months for sure yeah that's on the roadmap so that means it's true but yeah I really liked it it wasn't boring advice it's quite an easy style of writing in terms of basically each chapter he just interviews someone and like advice for that specific topic so maybe I end up writing a book kind of using his formula. I kind of like it. But certainly no problems. Also, it's a good one for marketing because you, you suddenly have like 20 people that have like, that are all kind of cool people that have co-written your book and also promoting it. And yeah, the advice was all useful. What did they learn? High growth is... There is similar to the messy middle, is in like it's not like a clear path. There's lots of different things that go wrong. I think he starts by saying that there's no specific advice that is true for everyone, and you kind of need to have like the right advice for the right specific company and stage that you're at. So trying to acknowledge too much of the things they say don't make so much sense. But even you know some of the stuff around like culture and management, where they're like, oh, every six months you kind of have a different company and different culture. We've gone from basically two people to six people we maybe took on three people last week and like the culture is just like holy shit we really need some like sort of things that sort of define how stuff goes but probably it's still going to be like different and yeah so it did have like appropriate stuff even now and what else did i learn lots of things the importance of like ceo's role and what i should be doing at different stages changes a lot which is kind of useful in like how to handle people which we can kind of dig into.
1: The book is actually not really made to be read like in one go. It's more of, as it said, a handbook where you're, you're managing a company, you're building a board and you're like, okay, this is getting tough. Like you can grab this book, read the chapter on the board and there should be some very valuable takeaways there for you to use and really just take it to account when you're doing the things that you're doing as a startup, as an entrepreneur and a CEO.
0: Exactly. So it's like a chapter on how to handle your board, a chapter on how to IPO, how to do a series, all these kind of different things.
1: I think reading the book, because my, myself, I've only worked in very early stage startups so that didn't yet get into the high growth phase, like maximum of people on the team were like 15. So never got to the hundreds people points where you had to scale it up to 2000 or something. But what I found, I think useful here is that by listening to this book and passively absorbing the way people think about later stages startups, I think it becomes very useful to be able to communicate what you're going to be doing once the company reaches a certain scale to investors. I've been on a few fundraising rounds in the past years and I wish I had listened to this book because just the way he talks about, okay, we're going to need executives for, for these types of positions, and this is how we're going to structure the organization. If you listen to it, you're going to be able to communicate it to the investors, which is going to give them confidence in your ability to be scaling much further. Um, because I didn't know much about companies in that stage. Uh, I wasn't able to communicate any proficiency in, in doing s- such things. And I think that's why this book might be useful also for people who are not in the exact position that the book helps in.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't read it just for fun if you're just a random person thinking about things. If you're considering starting a business, it's definitely read more the ones that are like how to start. But if you started, it definitely makes sense to read.
1: Yeah, exactly. But again, it was very much focused on Silicon Valley and where all the tech companies get clustered together and you're like, okay, should I get someone from Facebook or should I get like a VP from Google into my company? And I feel like if you would count the amount of people that this book will actually be used by and and actually be perfect for, I I think there's like a thousand people that will be able to like really use this book that will be in the position of, you know, building such a high growth company because like the companies that are using this book are the companies that are going to dominate the world. Well, dominate might be a big word, but are going to be very important in the world, you know, in a few years, because everyone's going to be using them. So yeah find it pretty niche in, in that regard, but still uh, useful for any startup entrepreneur to start thinking about, you know, later stages. Because I feel like if you're building a company and your ambition is to just find product market fit and go break even, or if you're building a company and you want to be- become a global powerhouse in a way and give your services to everyone over the whole world, I think... Both mindsets define where you get. If you aim at like have a global target, you might not get there, but at least you'll get somewhere in the way. It's it's the same as if if you're doing any type of sport. If your goal is to win the Olympics in that specific category, you're going to train differently than if you just want to become your local club champion or something. And that's why I feel it's useful to be ambitious.
0: Yeah. If I was listening to books, I just like how to get to kind of like a 5 million sort of valuation company where you basically have like a nice lifestyle or could perhaps sell to someone. I'd be probably going on that path rather than this path, hopefully.
1: And I think in absolute terms, it's going to be better if you aim higher and not reach your goals than if you aim lower and do reach them. All right. So a few of the things that he talks about. So for example, he has three main things that kill early stage companies. And so one of the points is failing to find product market fit, And so I think a lot of early stage companies think they have product market fits way too early. And that is because there are different types of users. And usually the early adopters are very lenient and very easy. And so what happens quite often is that you see that you can make money, like the positive unit economics uh, for the early adopters. But the moment that you try to go mainstream, these unit economics uh, go negative and you actually lose money on every new user that you get. And that's something that I found quite interesting. And so what he says is that the best signal to a company of having you know, a good product market fit is the ability to raise prices repeatedly without losing customers. So the moment that you can raise prices and not lose too many of your customers, of course, you'll you lose some, but not too many. That is the sign that you have found a product that the market really needs and that you're on your way to start scaling pretty really
0: hard. I like that one. I uh, didn't realize that was from this. I was quoting that the other day to someone. Cool. So yeah, the superhuman product market fit methodology is more about like how disappointed you would be if you can no longer use the product. And they recommend so you can get to 40% of users saying they'd be like really sad if they could not use a product again is when you've reached it. But uh, yeah, I think, I think that's a, a Warren Buffett quote actually is the the sign of product market fit being, being able to yeah being able to raise prices. But either way, it's just a, it's a very confusing one in the start where you, I think they say you kind of just have kind of like happy ears for the whole situation where like you're talking to your super users and they love it and you're like, yes, we've got product market fit. And then realistically, like 99.99% of people have never heard of you and probably don't care that much about what you're doing. And you still have to build quite a different thing for it to actually then be mass marketable.
1: Another early stage company killer, according to elad Gill, is uh, the co-founder conflicts. So uh, problems that arise when there's lack of clarity on decision-making, product vision and overlapping founder roles. Do you notice that being a potential problem in the company that you're building now?
0: Not so much in terms of my business partner, like I've known him since I was 10. We're, we're pretty solid on these things. Some of the decision-making, I think we have realized we need to be a lot more clear on, which has got a lot better. And overlapping founder roles that's partly back to the decision making as in has been a bit less clear but has now become a lot more defined in terms of I've kind of been had ownership of everything in terms of my skills whereas Jack has been a bit involved on on the funding side and like the gross and marketing side but not doing so much of that because we didn't have a product and was initially kind of coming up with excuses for why that wasn't really that useful but now he's kind of like got to the point where actually it's like okay there's lots of things that I can do and it's kind of taking ownership of that area and as a joint we are sort of both working on like culture and, and hiring and, and this sort of stuff and so I think we've got like a lot more to find on our roles and then we have a very clear role and need available for like a CTO who we are pretty sure we've identified maybe next week that'll be a different story hopefully it'll be a oh my god we had the best co-founder CTO ever and he's owning this area and then life will be great but that, this is like the big worry is like the co-founder conflict because we don't know this guy. And, you know, it's your co-founder is basically like getting married to someone and you kind of reach, need to be able to like trust them. And like I've had this issue with other people where you kind of think that you know them really well and turns out you really don't. And, and that's something like i had done for a few years and I thought it was like one of my best mates. So we're definitely like we're both, we're all in the same thing of like wanting to move as fast as possible to make this happen and also not wanting to move too fast at all and trying to do everything we can to get to know each other but he's also like in a different country and it's a bit inconvenient (laughs) this whole coronavirus not being able to like meet each other in normal scenario we would just like be on a plane and train and and be in the same place for like a week and ideally he could just come move in with us and, and do textiles from here but a bit annoying and everything we can to go as deep into like everything about each other and just been super honest ourselves with like our own problems and what we're like because i don't really have time for someone joining and then finding out they don't like things about us or how we work it's just no point selling someone something that they're not going to be happy with so yeah i feel like we're doing the most we can to stop that being a problem but then the other two issues that kill you do they all kind of link into each other? Like, so the first one, not finding product market fit, if you and that then causes problems around like how you should get there and stuff, you can get found a conflict. And then the other the final one after this is running out of money, which again, if that happens, can sort of go back, leading into co-founder conflict. So yes, doing what I can to reduce that.
1: One of the recommendations I got when it comes to co-founder conflicts is that there should be like some kind of vesting period for everyone, even for the founders like you and Jack. Like it's better that there is a vesting period because yeah, that's the advice I got. But anyway, if if someone comes on board, it's always better to have some kind of period because you never know where things are going to end up in a year or two.
0: We're doing a vesting period and maybe like trying to think of sort of all the worst case scenarios and how to like make us feel safe in them. So in terms of we're also having some of his technology. So maybe he doesn't have a vesting period on the technology, but if he does leave, we obviously don't want to have like someone with any kind of meaningful amount of shares in the company that isn't one of the founders. So we kind of also want to have the right to buy those shares off him at like the first valuation kind of thing. So he still knows that he'll get more than the valuation of naught for those shares, but also he can't like keep them for the next five years if we are actually still growing kind of thing so yeah trying to work out something that kind of feels fair for everyone so they can kind of just so that we don't have to like trust each other as humans and can just sort of know that like okay what we've agreed to is something that we can just feel happy with regardless but it's kind of a confusing one
1: one of the things that struck me in this whole book was it talked a bit about fundraising and how to raise funds for your next rounds and how to manage your board what kind of people you want on your board etc because if someone does main, big investments even in the early rounds they usually get a spot on your board and so in the book they talk quite a lot about that i've been in the fundraising space for a while now and it's very different fundraising for a tech company in a Silicon Valley than it was for a think company in mainland Europe, in Belgium, because he made it clear that for companies that he's advised or he worked in, like you can choose your investor instead of just hoping that someone is willing to give you money. Oh man, the way he talks about it is so funny. So you might not always want to go for the highest valuation because you want an investor that can you know, help you introduce you to new talent, other executives that knows the industry, et cetera. And that usually is more important than uh, the money itself and having high valuation. Meanwhile, myself, in my companies, I was like, okay, if you give us a euro, <laughs> we'll be happy, you know? So yeah, it's pretty funny how different the world is if you're in Silicon Valley building something that has the potential to take over the world or have something relatively local, which is not super scalable. So that was one of the things that really struck me. And also how important it is to have a a good name and network. So if you have the intention of starting a tech company, I think one of the better things you can do is start your career at one of the huge tech giants in Silicon Valley, basically. So if you go work at Facebook or Google or Tesla or or some of these companies, and you make it relatively high on the corporate ladder, and I think because these companies are meritocracies, and if you perform well, you should be able to get up to a relatively high level. I think that is going to really give you a head start to, to raising capital. Because if if you have an idea and you you know it's very scalable, but you do need a lot of starting capital, it's going to be very hard to do that from your college dorm, as uh, some very famous founders have done it. But if you can say like, okay, I've worked uh, at Google and Facebook and I was a VP of engineering there, and I'll be the tech lead, then that will, I think, very much help you in getting money and funds.
0: Definitely. Or having already run some kind of business that was successful. There's a similar company that started like, I think in april to us but they started with like blogs and text content so that you can like share that with your friends you can make highlights and stuff and you kind of have like the sort of knowledge base for yourself so it's a bit more around the learn it's well it's a lot more focused around the learning but still the actual way like database and everything structured and sort of features in that sense and but the guy ran like, this company called super awesome that just sold to epic games it's like a kid-friendly technology thing and they sold for, like, a few hundred million kind of thing. And he, yeah, he raised, he wasn't going to bother raising around because he'd already put, like, 200k into the idea. And then, then they're like, oh, actually, let's just go super hard on this because of it's lockdown and, and whatever. And he started to like, an angel round. It was oversubscribed, like, closed it within two weeks. And then because that went so well, like a month later, he raised 1.4 million. And like, literally, <laughs> he's still there, like, just trying to get into some form of accelerator, maybe, <laughs> to like working on it for six months. It's like, fuck's sake. And then, and now they've like, they, they put their roadmap together for the next two years. And they managed to do like one of the big features much faster. So it's like, well, because we showed that we could build this thing so fast, we're going to do like another round next month. Like You're like, bro, I'm still like, and it's like, yeah, well, you know, it, it sort of gets much easier once you've kind of got some, backing on those things but also you know it is kind of de-risked as an investor it's like it's just one of the clear signals that he kind of knows what to do with the money and probably has the contacts and the stuff so it, it's just validation of yourself and so certainly I you know when you are starting out don't really be it. ultimately if this company goes amazingly well and in five years time is worth a billion but I only actually own like a million worth of it like that's actually not the end of the world in terms of I'm much more likely to become a billionaire after that from this going so well and people being like, shit, Sam Harris, this guy's the guy. Then if I try and like make as much money from this one and like actually if I put any kind of limitation on its growth just for trying to try and own more of it, it's kind of actually not that like useful for your first company, which it's kind of a hard one to learn, which probably is why some of my other companies didn't grow so well because I kind of like, you know, they're always like, well, don't give away too much. You know, you need to like get your fair due from it. And it's like, well, actually it doesn't matter if what you're trying to do is like long-term success rather than short-term ownership or something.
1: True. Sure. And you're still so young, so you have like time to go through a whole company cycle and then start a new one.
0: Time goes fast, and especially if you do like optimize for moving as fast as possible. Like okay, giving away some of your company to acquire someone else that helps you move like literally three months down the road in your roadmap, and like that makes sense. Which is literally what I'm doing right now with a co-founder of like giving away some of my business to just move our roadmap three months ahead <laughs> in terms of tech, but also get some skills for the long run. Hopefully, a good guy. Mm. So also, I've acquired a business if this goes right, correct, <laughs> which is kind of cool a funny one anyway moving on uh, we didn't even get to the third point of what kills a startup which is running out of money which yeah basically trying not to run out of money which is, is a confusing one because it's like if you think trying to raise VC money like they always say okay maybe you don't need product market fit but they want as many signals as possible so you need some kind of clear traction and like people buying into you and these things and then like probably you need some form of demoable product and stuff like and also on textiles, if you can try and show as much progress during the thing as possible, like that's really exciting. So you kind of want to like burn your ships, spend all of your money as quickly as possible to like give you the chance. Especially in my scenario, of current company, because like, there's just so much noise around new audio apps at the moment and stuff that like if we try and play the long game and sort of like okay, we just get like one co-founder that's technical and we don't spend any money and perhaps it takes us two years, the market would have disappeared and there'd be no chance. So like we kind of need to kind of have like an app that like solves a problem that we've found right now. Otherwise, like the problem won't be there. So it's a hard balance to make in terms of spending and stuff
1: in any business scenario cash is king right because even if you're going for a next fundraise they'll always ask you okay how much runway do you have and if you're like two months then you know the sharks they start smelling blood and the valuation at which you can raise money suddenly takes a sharp dive because of your short runway etc so yeah it's a balance right everything uh, turns around cash and you have to find the best way to allocate it and to spend it i guess but i agree that in your scenario it makes more sense to to go hard because it's it's tech and and it's it's a extremely scalable business and it also has viral potential so yeah raise some money go hard hire 20 people
0: yeah well a few minutes time sure the demo day stuff going well anyway
1: one of the things I also noticed so when you talk about these legendary entrepreneurs for example Mark Zuckerberg who you know started Facebook back when he was at Harvard, was it? You think of a guy that was like, had a really great idea and was a very good coder. And and that was basically his skill set. And building Facebook that like he was he had a great idea, he's a great engineer, and that's basically it. But then so Elad Gill in his book uses Mark Zuckerberg as an example quite a few times. And one of the examples he gave was in the merchant and acquisitions part, he talked about how important it is to connect with people in your industry. And so apparently Mark Zuckerberg talked to the founders of Instagram and WhatsApp like one time each quarter just to keep up to date with what, what was happening. And that is actually the best way to buy a company. It's best to beforehand already have a relationship with the founders because if they trust you, the the whole process is going to be way easier. And so it kind of surprised me a bit because I didn't really know that, that Mark Zuckerberg was not only great at starting Facebook and building the original platform and having a great vision, but was also great at, you know, the later stages of the whole cycle. And that makes startup entrepreneurs like Zuckerberg or Elon Musk so amazing is that they are good at the early stages, but also good at the high growth stages. And now they're still really good at these stages where they're running some of the biggest companies in the world.
0: Yes, yeah, it's, it's the problem with the like, press and media is you kind of become famous for like the one thing and but like Steve Jobs actually not is pretty technical, cool guy as well as being like the legendary just visionary kind of side of things. But you kind of need to have all of them basically kick <laughs> it off, you kind of need to be like, You need to understand, like, the tech side. You need to understand people. You need to understand the industry and have, like, visions and think long-term. And you need to understand VCs and raise investment and all of that game. And you kind of need to be on all of it. And you need to just be, like, an organized human that can, like, actually... Make sure everyone knows what their tasks is at the right place and the right time, and give them the ability to do them, which is not the easiest thing. I, I <laughs> might, I might be struggling with it. Maybe
1: it's okay, man. He also says quite a few times that every entrepreneur, every CEO makes a lot of mistakes. You cannot do this without making any. So
0: he was always very happy to make mistakes, and it, that I think it also says that like he was also had like a lot of strong opinions, but was always willing to change them based on any new information. Which uh, strong opinions, weekly held, pretty essential.
1: Cool. For me, those are the main takeaways. I think for me, this book is almost like a university handbook that talks about like one chapter in a company's life and that you can use as a reference for things that will go wrong while you're, you're building a company that is in that particular cycle. You have something specific you want to discuss or you want to give us a rating and your main takeaway?
0: The worst things, but are you saying that you are out of time and need to go soon?
1: No, 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 no not necessarily no no i waved because your hand was in front of your mouth
0: so i was like is someone else something what's going on
1: no so I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna do this if you're touching your face
0: cool and then like this when i'm just speaking nonsense or
1: yeah I like this
0: okay cool in the interview with joel emerson there's a lot of growth and feedback from managers do you remember any of that no what about the ceo responsibilities with patrick collison from stripe
1: no there's nothing that's jumps to mind necessarily no, nothing that was like oh i need to write this down
0: the board meeting agenda that was something i'm definitely going to use delegation that is something that i do you do need to get better at as you grow i mean certainly with any business you could have you basically just do things the first time yourself and you try and delegate it all but i'm currently like trying to prioritize ruthlessly because i have like 50 hours a day worth of stuff i could be doing and it takes time to like delegate that to other people or you know like i had to log into Textiles where i can get all the different voucher codes for all the cool different companies that i can do stuff with for free but like is it the best use of my time to spend like three hours going through like all these different things to make sure that i have like the circle ci year free when someone else can do that when i'm the only person that can also write the financial model and the only person that can kind of like talk to all the investors with the pitch deck and so it's just trying to when there's like a million things that sort of seem to come to you first <laughs> you sort of need to get better systems for handling things off which that's just like initial startup stuff but then as you grow and grow it's then like empowering the managers to sort of manage their things and give them the right feedback and it's a kind of hard process.
1: And what also struck me about delegating and in general managing people was how important it is to manage people and to work with people instead of you're working on an extremely technical product and you think that as a leader of that company understanding the technology is most important that was actually not the case at all if you listen to this book it's very clear that the best people to have in these kind of companies are the ones that can make shit happen executives and managers they don't do things themselves. They have others do it. And that is so important to be able to communicate, to have processes in place. And that's actually something that I really took away. So as a big part of the book talked about uh, hiring a COO, so a cheap uh, operations officer. And in general, I think once a company comes into the high growth stage, processes become so much more important. And that's why I think I'm not sure if I would thrive in like a, a high growth stage, Because I've worked in in very big companies, in very big banks that had a lot of processes and it bothered me so much. Like I hated having to ask five people before I could write a line of code. And I I understand that once a company reaches a certain level, they need to implement these kind of processes. And so maybe I'm not the best person to be leading a high growth startup. I don't know.
0: If you have a COO that can do all those things that so we've certainly established so technically I'm CEO and Jack is currently the COO because we didn't really have like a different title for him, but he's like, he is not a COO. And we're both safe with that. If he was to hear that, he, he would be agree. He He's just not like a processes person. Like he needs a secretary To make notes for him and like actually make sure he's got all the right follow-ups on his plate and stuff as in he's like relentlessly good at like sales and picking up the phone and making deals and that kind of stuff but in terms of like delegating tasks specifically to people in like an orderly manner and like putting any systems in place it's just like it's a bit chaotic but he's great at what he does so I'm, I'm happy with him as a co-founder but we definitely need like a COO style person which was like I was on the phone with a, a nice lady who's one of our mentors who's been starting a podcast giving her advice she's run like quite a few businesses before as a COO and, or CPO and she was kind of really like dropping a lot of hints that she would love to join us as like I'm just looking for like a, a startup that I can like co-found with someone that really love podcasting <laughs> and I'm like oh I wonder if I know anyone but because we're taking on the CTO right now and like had two other people joining it it's just that i can't deal with like more co-founder dating right now to work out if someone's the right fit but maybe she's perfect but it's just uh maybe in a, in a few months time we'll, we'll look at that because it could be perfect in terms of we do need someone that's like much better at putting these things in place and if it de risks us in terms of like okay we've got someone that's run some multiple businesses like if someone's looking at us as an investor okay it sounds like we've got some right people on the founding team and entities of women some diversity these things like it kind of ticks all the right boxes <laughs> and terms a potential culture and things but also just my, my brain and <laughs> doing things right let's take a break but yeah I've definitely felt like my role I, I should be doing less doing of anything and basically I should be just making sure I'm explaining everyone how they should be doing their thing and like empowering them to do the best job they can and I, I should be building a business not doing any of the tasks as such going forwards so looking forward to getting better at, at
1: that. I think one of the things he also talks about is for CEOs that you should be careful not putting yourself in the picture too much and like defocusing from what you're really doing because you're saying that you're talking to many mentors and many potential investors etc and there I think he would say that be careful not to lose sight of what is really important which is the viability of your business right where you know you can talk to a million mentors but while you're talking to mentors and gaining more insights on how to run your company you're not actually running your company right so I think that's something that you could potentially take away from that I don't know how you're handling that but I guess as you read the book should be okay
0: in, it was really useful the start of Techstars the first month where we met like 100 mentors and like the follow-ups and stuff like it really sort of accelerated where I was on so many levels and like taught me lots but it's definitely not so helpful right now and um, really not trying to and I felt like we kind of went through and found most of the like introductions to people that we needed to know and that kind of stuff through doing it and maybe like a weekly sort of cool with like a few of our lead mentors like almost like a board style or something to just talk about things it's like useful but yeah it just takes up so much time in the day learning and building your network when actually you need to be building your business it's super annoying and i don't have time for more phone calls
1: yeah can imagine not easy man if i would learned one thing of the books that we've been reading is that don't take successful tech companies for granted you know it's not because they had a great idea that they just become world leaders in what they did no it was because of uh, a lot of hard work and uh, yeah i think it's, uh, it's really hard all right so any what's your rating
0: for the book i think seven i'm gonna go with seven It seems really useful i think i will get more out of it when i read it again next and it will keep on giving i also feel like maybe it could be a bit more condensed if it is to be a handbook it's written more as like a long book even though it's a handbook and you could sort of condense it down to more like one page on each chapter of like how to do these things and there's like a couple more of it it could be more structured as a handbook and maybe at the end of each chapter have some like specific okay these are the kind of like questions you need to ask yourself this is like what you need to do whereas it's semi a handbook but it's like it's a long chapter for each thing where you do learn all the things that you need to learn for that section but I think there, maybe it could be like a handbook to go with the handbook. So you read all this for like general interest, but then there's like a shorter version where it's like the one page of like, this is the summary of what you learn and like a two page, like working sort of pull out where you kind of go through each box to tick for like doing that stage or something. Like, okay, these are the the processes you need to to talk to management. This is like the type of meeting agenda that you have. And like, this is how you run it. And just like sort of a page for that, that you can kind of take, whereas it kind of just alludes to these things, but doesn't actually give it to you.
1: I agree for me. I'm going to give it a four because I think it's, it's extremely niche, the book. And so there's very few people that will actually be using this book as a handbook. I mean, there were some interesting interviews there. I really loved the interview with one of my heroes, uh, Naval Ravikant. Oh, he's a, such a cool guy. Everything he does, man, that guy. Every time he speaks, I'm listening. Anyway, but apart from that, I think it's it's so niche. And so specific that I think is very useful if you're in that position, but like, I'm not in that position yet. So that's why I didn't find it very useful. I think for the general public, it's not very useful to read. Even if you're into startups, I think there's better books out there.
0: I did put it down the first time when I was like, I think this is great, but like, this isn't the best use of my time. Like I'm not learning something practical for myself right now. If it is general, if you're in general interest, like there's no harm in reading it. And if you want to be in VC and you're investing in companies, it's useful. If you ever want to be some kind of like mentor or coach, it's probably useful. If you're working in one of those companies, it's useful to know what the rest of your management's going through. If you're in management in those companies, it sort of also makes sense. So I wouldn't say it's just like the few thousand people that are maybe running companies. It's a lot of people that are engaged with them that it sort of makes sense for. But I still wouldn't necessarily say it's the most useful book if you are one of those other people to read compared to like maybe something else that could change your life.
1: Exactly. All right, that rounds up this episode. For the next episode, Sam and I will be reading Obviously Awesome, written by April Dunford. So yeah, stay tuned for that and uh, see you in the next episode. Cheers. Thank you. Hey there, Nico here, your second favorite host of the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. Sam and I would like to get some feedback from you. So what we're going to do from now on is each episode, we're going to select one random comment from the past week's And we will give them a free electronic version of the book that we've just read. So if you like what we are doing, or if you don't like what we're doing, or if you have a comment or a question, just reach out and we might be in touch. Cheers.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. As you know, we are doing this to try and help you get smarter. Well, I have another project for podcast listeners just like you who want to be smart. Nico and I learned so much from reading the same things together and discussing them and I wanted there to be a tool that made it easy for anyone to listen to the same podcasts and books together with their friends. So I'm building the app Syncify, which does just that. It connects you with your friends in the app, listen to the same things at the same time, or create shared playlists and work through them at your own pace. You can share comments and highlights of your favorite bits, and become smarter by seeing what your friends think around the same content that you enjoy. As a bonus... It also helps with your mental health and reduces isolation. Personally, I hate publishing my life on social media, which I find all rather anti-social. And I don't go out of my way to phone a friend for no reason other than the fact I feel lonely. But I do love doing things with other people. And having my friends listen to the same things is, is really awesome. I mean, I used to speak to Nico like once a year before we started this book club together. And now we talk all the time because we're just doing something together. So do yourself a favor and sign up for the Syncify app at syncifyapp.com. And I really hope it helps. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed the show or learned anything new, be sure to share it with your friends. And I just can't tell you how great it is if you were to happen to leave a review on iTunes. These really do help quite a lot. If you have any questions or books that you'd like us to read, feel free to reach out to us through the website wiserpod.com or reach out to us on linkedin and just keep loving and keep learning and ideally keep listening big love from sam and nico and the wiser than yesterday podcast